Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet podcast series. My name is George Ray, and I am your regular host. Today, we are bringing you an episode from the Enforcement Angle series, a partnership between the Environmental Law Institute and Sidley Austin LLP. Justin Savage and Nicole Noliste will be serving as your host today. Justin is a partner and the global co-leader of the environmental practice at Sidley Austin LLP. Nicole is a managing associate in the environmental practice at Sidley Austin. Through the series, our goal is to discuss state and federal enforcement of environmental laws and regulations with senior enforcement officials and thought leaders on environmental enforcement in the United States and globally. On today's episode, Justin and Nicole speak with Joseph Pooks and Anne Brosnan. Mr. Pooks is the Deputy Chief of the Environmental Crime Section at the U.S. Department of Justice, where he supervises a staff of 36 environmental prosecutors. He has been with the department since 2001. In addition to his management responsibilities, he supervises the department's National Vessel Pollution Program and Animal Welfare Program. For the past six years, he has served as chair of Interpol's Pollution Crime Working Group, which recently conducted Operation 30 Days at Sea 3.0, the follow-up to Operation 30 Days at Sea, the largest ever global law enforcement operation targeting marine pollution involving 67 countries. Prior to joining the Department of Justice, Mr. Pooks spent 10 years with the Maryland Office of the Public Defender. He received a BA from Wheeling Jesuit University and a JD from the Georgetown University Law Center. Anne Brosnan is Chief Prosecutor and Deputy Director of Legal Services with the Environment Agency, England. She is qualified as a solicitor in both England and Australia, where she spent time with the Department of Environment and Conservation in Sydney. She has a master's degree in environmental quality management. Anne was instrumental in the introduction of the English environmental civil sanctions regime in 2010. She is president of the European Network of Prosecutors for the Environment and a board member of Interpol's Pollution Crime Working Group. Anne and Joe served together on the Interpol Pollution Crime Working Group. All right, terrific. Thanks, Georgia, for the introduction. And I'm glad we can have this conversation today, Nicole, Joe, and Anne. And I guess before we get started, how are you doing, Joe and Anne, this morning? Or this afternoon, in Anne's case? Doing very well, Justin. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. All well and sunny here in the UK. That's awesome. And thanks for being here, Joe and Anne. Before we talk about your work, could you please tell us a bit about yourselves and how you came to serve in law enforcement, protecting the planet? Joe? Sure. Well, after law school, I joined the public defender's office in Maryland for 10 years, which isn't really in the environmental area, but it was a great job and I worked with great people. And after about 10 years, I decided I wanted another challenge to do something else and wasn't really sure what I would do after that. But my friend and colleague, Deborah Harris, who's now my boss at that time, had made a similar move from the public defender's office over to the environmental crime section and described it as a great place to work with people who are very motivated about the mission and said, it's not really a job, it's more a calling. I think you'd like it here. So following her advice, I put in, got hired, and 20 years later, I'm still here. So I think Deborah's advice was right. And... 
I think my story is perhaps a little like Joe's because like him, I did some defence work before I came to prosecutions and I worked for individuals who were in trouble in the criminal justice system because I was very driven towards areas where I thought that I could make a difference. I've enjoyed helping people, but I consider that the work that I do now on protecting the environment and protecting the planet is equally valuable. And in some cases, you can actually just do a bit more, that you can hold big companies, corporations to account. And I think that that work in protecting the environment, protecting the planet, as you put it, is really important. I've been with my organisation for some 30 years, and I've been in this role as chief prosecutor for just about 10 years. Thanks so much, Anne and Joe. As a level set for those who may not know, what is Interpol generally? How would you describe it to a layman? what it does, what's its functions, how is it created? Sure, Interpol is essentially a police communication organization set up to facilitate communication between law enforcement agencies in different countries. I think at the moment they have 195 member states. It's headquartered in Lyon, but each member state has their own branch office, for lack of a better term, a National Central Bureau or an NCB. In the U.S., the NCB is housed in the Department of Justice building in Washington, D.C., and it's co-managed, co-run by the U.S. Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security. And the idea is that it is a secure communication channel for, for example, the police here in the U.S., if they had a question, to be able to reach out to their colleagues and counterparts in the U.K. in sort of a real-time sense. There are other vehicles for communicating from law enforcement to law enforcement. They can be somewhat unwieldy and can take a longer period of time because they're more formal. But this is set up in such a way that the police can talk and share information in real time. It's open 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. I think one of the misconceptions about Interpol is they don't have any police or special agents of their own. It's a communications hub. If you watch the movies, you'll see Clive Owen running around arresting people in an Interpol jacket. But that's not really what it is set up to do. It's more communications based, which is why the member countries and the subject matter experts such as Anne that participate in these groups are so valuable because they are the folks that really know what the laws are and what the stuff on the ground is and share their expertise. Awesome. Thanks, Joan. What year was Interpol created? Ah, that's a trick question, Nicole. I do not have an answer to that. I do know at some point the General Assembly of Interpol back in 1992 started recognizing environmental crime as an area of increased focus because of transboundary shipments of illegal waste and other sort of crime. So it started off with a focus on waste and environmental crime. And I think a year later, they started looking into wildlife trafficking. And they set up four different working groups. There's a pollution crime working group that Ann and I are members of, a wildlife crime working group. There's a fisheries crime working group. And the newest working group is sort of the illegal timber forestry crime working group. And each of those working groups are made of subject matter experts from member countries who get together and sort of identify priority areas. And the other part about Interpol that's different than a lot of other organizations that operate internationally is it's operational. It's not necessarily, or in fact, not primarily capacity building or working on legislation. It is law enforcement to law enforcement operational activities, which each working group tries to do with at least an annual operation every year. Very helpful. Let's talk a bit about the Pollution Crime Working Group. Why was it formed at Interpol? 
Well, I think back in the beginning, and this is a little before my time, so I'm going on some history that I've been told, but much like the rest of the world, environmental crime originally dealt with pollution and waste. Again, here in the U.S., when I joined the environmental crime section where I am now, it was all about pollution. Since that time, other areas have come into focus under the umbrella of environmental crime, as I mentioned, forestry crime, timber and fisheries. But in the beginning, folks were concerned. They had seen evidence that environmental crime, specifically pollution and waste trafficking, was becoming increasingly a global problem. As hard as it is to coordinate internally within our respective countries with the different law enforcement agencies, the problem is exacerbated once you leave your country and you're dealing transboundary. And there are enforcement gaps internationally that we know. I think the criminal groups that operate in that space know them far better than us. They know what the challenges are, at least before, I guess, when we got started. Hopefully, they believe the chance of detection was low, that the rewards were high. And if you were caught, the punishments in terms of effective deterrence were non-existent. So it was decided, it being a global problem, we needed a global solution and bringing many of the tools that Interpol had used in other areas of law enforcement to the environmental crime arena. Really helpful. And Anne, can you talk a bit about the members of the working group? I got to know the group through Joe. We met at a number of conferences and it has international representatives. So there are colleagues from the Netherlands, from South Africa, from other parts of Africa. It's a wide ranging group. But as with any group, we have Australian counterparts and the rest. It is quite difficult when you're dealing with an international group to have meetings that everybody can join at one time and to keep the group in one place and to keep them focused on an issue that's relevant internationally. And so it's been very interesting meeting our counterparts from various parts of the world and working together on issues that we have found that we have in common. And we have, I think, found that there are lots of issues in common between us all as we've spent time with the group. Yeah, that's really helpful. And what's your specific role in the working group? Oh, I'm the diplomat. I like that title. (laughs) No, 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 no. I I am teasing here. I think everybody has, there is an equality. and, And Joe will, I'm sure he won't mind if I'm not going to spare his blushes here. We have, it's a group, it's very democratic. We're a group of equals because we come from different parts of the world to bring our skills and expertise. We don't have individual responsibilities, but what we are all focused on is trying to secure proper outcomes that make a difference to the environment. And I think I'll come back to Joe on this. The one thing that we all have in common is that we are quite operational people, that we're doers rather than talkers. And we very much like to think that the work we do particularly through Interpol, and Joe will talk about the 30 days of action and 30 days at sea. That work really makes a difference, and it's not just a talking shop. So perhaps, Joe, you want to talk about those things? Sure. Just to follow up, and Anne is too kind, I think my term would be figurehead. The brains on the operation would be the rest of the board. And if I have a talent, it's identifying folks that are very talented like Anne and forcing them to join the board and not letting them leave. But when I got started back in 2015, I went to my first meeting just by chance. Someone canceled at the last minute. I had no prior background. But when I showed up at the meeting, there were two things that struck me. One was the group of people in the room were actual law enforcement folks from around the world. And I had not dealt in that area before, but there seemed to be a lot of talented people who had an idea of what the global priorities should be. The second thing that I had picked up was when I talked to the Interpol officials in Lyon, they said, Hey, it's great you're here from the U.S., but part of the problem is every year you send someone different, 
and it appears to be sort of something that's handed out as a prize. You get to go to this annual meeting. It would really be great if we had some consistency. So I came back and asked my boss, Deborah, would you mind if I tried to be more active in this group? And she said, sure. I don't think she knew what she was signing up for. But in that context, I went to the next annual meeting and became chair. And the first thing I noticed is I don't think the group had done anything operational in about eight years prior to getting there. The meetings generally seem to be discussing things and projects that had been done several years before. Part of the problem with our group is the environmental subdirector that oversees working groups is completely self-funded and so relies on donations from outside groups to fund operational activities. And depending on what the priorities are around the world, that kind of decides some of the priorities. And as we've seen, I'd say both in the U.S. and internationally, wildlife and timber and some of these other areas get more attention, therefore more funding. The pollution area has been a little more of a challenge. So particularly with our working group, we didn't have a lot in the way of resources, which was a plus in many ways because we were kind of left alone to come up with our own priorities and activities. And the first thing we started doing at the first meeting were just four people in the basement of the Scottish EPA building saying, what do we do? Because once you get elected to the board, there's no handbook, there's no notes or anything. We were kind of making it up as we went along. And the first thing we decided we wanted to do was do an operation. And at some point, the question is, what do you do? What kind of operation? And what we decided was we weren't going to let the perfect be the enemy of the good here. The most important thing was to set up an operation to get countries working together, talking. And so the only requirements we had was countries that participated had to do an operation in conjunction with another country. It was focused on waste generally, but we didn't specify a particular area. The idea was we were starting. We didn't know what was important to each country. Let the countries come up with their own priorities. And it's a little daunting at the first meeting. You know, what if you had an operation and no one came? And mentioned the phrase that came from our Scottish colleagues, Willie Wilson at SEPA, who mentioned we didn't want to be a talking shop. A lot of the stuff we'd seen internationally, it's all about meetings and talking, not actually doing things. So that was the other sort of motto we adopted. The first operation we called 30 Days of Action. And to my point of what if no one came, we had 43 countries participated in our first operation. And again, for us, that was sort of amazing because they had to fund everything themselves. There was no other support. I mean, Interpol provides communication support and some planning assistance. Well, these countries just joined up on their own. And that's when we first saw the excitement countries had for working together in this area. And that was the jumping off point. Thanks so much, Joe. A question I had is, how does Interpol partner with national governments and organizations such as the EU, African Union, the UN? What does it look like? Well, Anne is more familiar with the EU activities through her work with MP, but I'd say in the beginning, at least as far as our group goes, it was mainly Interpol that was going forward. There are different groups that have different priorities. You mentioned with UN, for example, a lot of their work is policy or legislation based, not operational, which is why Interpol is sort of unique in this area. But as our projects went on, we started partnering with other groups such as Europol, which is you know a European version of Interpol in many ways, and Frontex and some of the World Customs organizations. But the groups we mainly partnered with were law enforcement operations and anything in that area I left out. Yes, yeah, probably worth just reminding ourselves that Interpol is pretty wide ranging. It's not just concerned about the environment and environmental security. So it has contacts in various member states, particularly in Europe, on lots and lots of different issues, different areas such as cybercrime and drugs and terrorism. 
So we, within the environmental sectors of member states in the EU, are probably not the first point of contact with Interpol in many cases and in certain areas of work. But we have a very good working relationship with contacts who do. For example, in the UK, that's our national crime agency. In other EU member states, there are direct links between a similar national crime agency and Interpol. But they have within Interpol their ENS department, Environmental Security. And that's where we have our main focus and our biggest dialogue to concentrate on taking forward issues that relate to environmental protection. And Nicole, I'll just also add that the members of our board, that's where these subject matter experts become very useful. And getting the right people in the room is helpful. One of our board members, Heather McCready from Canada at the time, was with Environment and Climate Change Canada. Director of Enforcement was able to get the Canadian government more involved. We have Edwin Lagerfeld from the Netherlands and Per Knut from Norway, Toby Grant Walters from South Africa. They were all points of contact that were able to go back to their governments who had heard the Interpol name, but wasn't perhaps necessarily aware of what they did in the environmental space. And so they were very helpful. I'm going to leave someone out in the list of board members who are helpful. I don't do that on purpose. But that's mainly how we interact at home. And I would say even in the U.S., it's been helpful in sort of educating folks in the environmental part of the USG about Interpol and what they do. Because I think a lot of countries view things internally and finding out what's happening in the rest of the world and what resources are out there can be a challenge. I had a follow-up question for Ann. Joe mentioned something called NPAY, which I'm assuming is an acronym. Can you explain what NPAY stands for, what it does, and any developments that you're working on that might be interesting? Okay, thank you, Justin. Yes, NPAY is the European Network of Prosecutors for the Environment, and that's an organisation that was established pretty much exactly 10 years ago, a bringing together of prosecutors who prosecute environmental cases in Europe. So we don't have this international megalomania that Joe has. We are very much a European-centric organisation. And it's a forum for prosecutors to get together and share information and best practice. We were funded by the European Commission. We were established in, I think, 2012. We obtained funding in 2015 from the European Commission to do some project work amongst our members to try and ensure we were doing capacity building, we were collecting the right sort of data around environmental prosecutions. And it's quite interesting that NP's activities really took off in about 2015, which was pretty much the time that Joe joined the Pollution Crime Working Group and became the chair of that group. And it became obvious to us within MP, to me, that there was a real energy in that group and that there was a real drive, it was no longer moribund, that there was a real drive to start up some operational activities. So we have worked as closely as we could with those activities. The difference being that NP is a prosecutor's network and Interpol is very much uh, police focused. But obviously, any enforcement and investigation should ultimately end up in court. And so there's a real mutual interest in making sure the operations work so that the outcomes and the results can be fed through to prosecutors so that we can make the most of the enforcement action. So we've been working together in NP with Interpol and Joe's group in particular to try and just make the best that we can of these different strands of work that are going on and make sure that we're joined up and aligned, that we're not doing this work in silos and separate from each other. 
And I think that properly reflects how we started working together, Joe, doesn't it? And you invited me to come on to the Pollution Crime Working Group. Justin, I mean, just to show I mean, the international environmental community or the enforcement community is fairly small in terms of once you get in, you tend to know everyone. And in addition to not being a talking shop, our other motto is we'll call anyone. And Anne made the mistake of answering my call one day. We never met, we hadn't worked together and started picking her brains about how to do some work in this area, invited her to a meeting. And again, she made the mistake of accepting. And I told her, well, now you have to be on the board. And it's through this connection just again, reaching out that we're able to make contact that I think has been very productive to the point. And I don't know, Anna, I don't mean to be speaking out of school, but it's led to cooperation agreements that we're now exploring between the EU, NP, Eurojust, and the United States Department of Justice to work in this area. And at least from the U.S. side, we were approached saying, hey, do we know anybody that does environmental crime stuff internationally? And we already have this network set up, so it fit in very nicely. And again, just worked out stemming from a phone call. Are there areas of focus or priorities that you can just talk about at a high level? I mean, we're not asking you to talk about pending investigations, but just things that either for Interpol or NP or these other international organizations you work with that you view as priorities in the the pollution space? Yes, that was part of the discussion we had recently that Joe has just touched on there. We had a meeting at Eurojust's headquarters that was recently in the end of September, and that was NP and Eurojust and the US Department of Justice and the EU Commission and Europol. And we were looking at how we might work better together in terms of environmental protection. And what we chose to do was to set down a list of priorities and areas that we thought might be the sort of subject areas that we would wish to work on more closely going forward. And we've talked about marine pollution in particular. We've talked about PFAS, these forever chemicals that we are finding in groundwater and in surface waters. We've talked about looking at illegal transport of waste and trying to map across the different organisations, the different bodies that might be involved both in the US and in Europe. And what we're hoping to do is to establish a much more joined up approach to, so better intelligence in relation to, some of the actual crime that we're seeing on the ground. And that's particularly helpful in relation to serious and organised crime. We are finding that waste is becoming a front for serious and organised crime, particularly on the international stage. And it's really important that we are working with each other to try and find out what's coming out of the US and what's coming out of Europe. And is it going to the same sort of places and who's transporting it? And I think that was an area that we discussed, Joe, fairly recently as an area that we might want to spend a bit more time working on. Definitely. And there are many challenges working internationally. We've got different legal regimes, different countries approach this very differently. Some have a criminal bent. Some view this purely environmental crime as a civil or administrative matter. A lot of countries don't have a lot in the way of resources to spend with investigations. And and so that's part of the challenge that we face. But I think the meetings Anne's referring to, we're trying to figure out that's not necessarily worry about the problems. Let's see what we have in common and what we can do. The area of organized crime when it comes to environmental criminal behavior is a challenge. It's perhaps not been as studied in certain countries as it should be. And as I've mentioned before, the enforcement gaps that exist nationally or domestically uh, are about 100 times worse or harder to enforce internationally. And it takes special law enforcement skills to find this. Environmental crime, particularly in the waste area, you're dealing with science, you're dealing with financial white collar crime. In a lot of places, countries don't have the resources just for the environmental investigators, let alone marrying them up with financial investigators who are able to follow the money. Part of the challenge here is we're told, where's your evidence? 
And the response many times we have to say is, well, we need to look at this more. It's sort of a catch-22. But we look at other areas that get a lot more attention when it comes to organized crime, such as wildlife trafficking, timber. The incentives there are a little different because countries there are losing valuable resources that are leaving the country. And there is an interest in keeping them there. And so more in the way of investigative resources are expended. Waste is a liability. At some point, if you investigate and you find the waste being illegally exported, you got to bring it back, which isn't going to get you employee of the year anytime soon. Before I leave that point, the problem is you can decide I'm not going to smuggle wildlife this year. I'm not going to export timber. But you have waste that's building up day after day after day that needs to be addressed. You can't just say we don't care about that. We'll figure that out next year. That problem has been exacerbated by many of the traditional countries that accepted our waste in the past have said, no, we're not taking that. I've seen some studies where the U.S. was exporting maybe 700,000 tons of our waste to some of these countries in Asia. Now we can't do that. And so that's open to market for people to say, all right, we'll take that waste off your hand. And they get money coming and going. They charge high prices to get rid of it because it's considered hazardous waste. And then they sell it off on a much lower rate because they don't treat it in these countries as hazardous waste. So it's almost a license to print money. And so that's an area that we are seeing popping up that we think needs further study in the area of organized crime. And tied in with that, plastics. And I will say part of the issue with plastics has to do with some legislative issues or some legal issues that we have. The U.S., for example, is not a signatory or it is a signatory, but they've not enacted the Basel provisions. So exporting plastic from the U.S. to these countries that can't handle is not a crime, whereas in Europe it is. It's considered a hazardous waste. And when countries export it illegally, they got to pay to bring it back. And so I think we're seeing some of the markets here in the U.S. stepping in to take some of this waste off people's hands. Thanks, Joe. We know in the States, and I think in England, climate seems to be a big focus of the current administrations. How does that factor into the areas of focus at Interpol? Andy, do you want to start off? Okay, I would say that climate change is the most important issue that we have to consider in environmental terms. And it's really important that we're not just moving the deck chairs around while the Titanic is sailing onwards. So we are all the time looking to see, are we prioritising the right approaches to environmental protection and environmental crime to make sure that we're addressing issues that may impact on climate change? For us, some of the biggest areas that we need to look at are industrial emissions and trying to reduce those and trying to manage those. We also need to look at particularly movement of ships at sea and movement of waste because waste that's not properly treated and managed will often end up catching fire, being set on fire in some remote part of the world where it will damage the local environment, where it will damage individuals' health and well-being and where it will have long-term impacts on the surrounding waters or the land or um, discharge to air. So we need to look at some of the bigger issues that are happening and saying, what can we do to tackle those? We don't need to just keep our view as domestic and narrow. We want to look at a, a wider focus. One of the newer issues for us that we haven't considered previously, but we're trying to look at is shipbreaking and the breaking up of oil platforms. And these are taken around the coast and are dumped on beaches in Pakistan and India and broken up with very little protection for either individuals or for the environment. And so it is really important all the time to be saying, are we addressing the right issues? Are we looking at the things that really matter? And the other item I'd like to throw in there is plastic. Joe's already mentioned plastic. 
the failure to properly manage our plastic debris and our plastic waste is a problem that we must address in the industrialised world and in the first world. We use it, we lose it, we throw it away without a second's thought. And we need to make sure that we're managing our wastes and particularly our plastic waste much, much better. Thanks, Anne. Anything to add, Joe? I think Ann pretty much covered it. I'd only add that part of the challenge in these areas is someone comes out and says we care about climate change. And there could be a lot of policy and a lot of broad discussions about what that means. But I think on our level, trying to translate into operational activities, what that means on the ground in terms of what actually constitutes a crime and what we can do about it can be a challenge. Anne's mentioned some of the areas. I throw in another area of the illegal import and export of HFCs that we are seeing that comes out and being able to make the connection because these are international networks that we have seen and being able to connect those dots can be a challenge. We see various carbon credit trading plans coming down the pike, which touch on the area of climate change. What we've seen in other similar fields is the potential for fraud is incredible. And some of the systems that are being set up are being set up perhaps without considering what the possible criminal involvement here might be. And so that is another challenge. And it touched on plastics. And a lot of times plastics is looked at as an environmental harm itself. But if you look at plastic production, That's petroleum-based. It impacts climate change from the trucks that bring the materials to the factory, to the plastics that are made, to the plastics that are burnt because they're being sent to countries that can't responsibly process it. And so focusing on the granular is a challenge that we look at with the working group and in our respective countries in terms of how to make a difference. And some of this stuff has other real-world impact. If we look, at least in the U.S., the recycling industry essentially the bottom has fallen out of it in terms of being able to meaningfully recycle or have a recycling program because as doors have shut to our plastic waste, the cost of recycling responsibility right now is probably two or three times what virgin plastic costs. And so we're really setting up a disincentive for folks to try and start any kind of effective recycling program. And again, you don't think of recycling as necessarily a criminal issue. It's it's a broader issue, but there are things we can do on the criminal side to try and step in and perhaps help reinvigorate whatever the recycling issue programs are. And just to follow up on that, so companies, global companies deal with a range of counterparties. Is there any just generalized guidance that you, Anna and Joe, can provide to companies that maybe deal with waste or other issues just so that they don't get caught up with a criminal gang? And it may seem like common sense, but sometimes successful organized crime outfits are marked by sophistication. So are there any things people should just be on the lookout in terms of red flags so that they know their counterparties? Joe, do you want to pick up that one? Oh, sure. And jump in there. I and mean, I think companies can just be very careful of who they become involved with and ask necessary questions, understanding that that's not always going to be the best business decision. And then I have both seen examples, the environmental, particularly the waste industry is full of folks who perhaps if you knew everything, you wouldn't want to be involved with. And what we've seen are some of these criminal groups reaching out and bringing people on board who have great reputations to sort of provide cover. But if you start asking or doing due diligence, you start finding out, wait a second, these people aren't what they represent themselves to be. Pretty soon you find yourself as a front or involved with some shady characters, let's say. 
A lot of this waste that we're seeing, as opposed to other environmental crime, you can't put a bunch of environmental waste in your suitcase and take it someplace. It's not a very effective way to get rid of this stuff. So we're seeing a lot of the shipping industry has to be involved in terms of transporting this. Sometimes if they ask a couple more questions or we're a little more inquisitive, that would help us connect some of these dots or find these networks. I understand there is a business decision, but I think a business or companies understand that if you have a bad actor who's doing things on the cheap, it hurts the legitimate people and sort of undercuts them and makes their life harder. So bringing them on board or asking those questions is helpful. One of the challenges is law enforcement isn't necessarily set up to manage certain international shipping information. It's not something we have easy access to. And so in addition to law enforcement, what we've tried to do with the group is bring other parties into the discussion. I think industry has a role, and I think ANTS, the UK, is ahead of us and other countries in that regard. But bringing them in, bringing in NGOs who have information because they have access to stuff that we don't in our own respective law enforcement organizations. So the solution isn't just going to be law enforcement, bringing in responsible companies who are going to hold their competitors accountable and NGOs is certainly a piece of it. Anne? I would agree with that. And I'd also say it's a huge market out there for waste advice. There are all sorts of consultants and specialist organizations that will advise operators as to how they can go about waste minimization and how they can control and manage all of their operations that may potentially adversely impact the environment. And it's really, I think, incumbent upon operators to take that advice, to seek out that advice. They don't want to be talking to Joe and I because they're in totally the wrong place if they're talking to us. They need to be talking to the people right up front who can give them really good advice. And just sort of flying a flag for a moment for the legal profession, there are an awful lot of lawyers, legal organisations that do provide support and networking and contacts to their clients to ensure that they keep them out of trouble rather than having to get them out of trouble. That makes a lot of sense, I think. Thanks, Anna Joe. You have a lot on your plate, but let's pause a moment and talk about some of your past work and potential successes. And I know, Anne, when we talked to get ready for this, you mentioned, of all things, a story about mustard gas. So maybe, you know, if you can, just to share a little bit about that. I'm such a fan of this case, and Joe has heard this case before, so I apologize to him for having to sit through it again. But the moral of the story really is that you never know what to expect when you're in law enforcement and prosecution. You never know what is going to come your way. And this case, this mustard gas case, concerns a small part of the UK in Lincolnshire where some military enthusiasts, if I can call them that, went to visit a disused airfield and they managed to dig up some canisters from underground. They know that in these, around these disused airfields there are all sorts of memorabilia and they go to fairs and auctions and they swap the memorabilia and they also can sell it. And I think that was the driving force here with these military enthusiasts. So they dug up some canisters and some pottery bottles and they wondered what these were and so they put them in the back of their jeep and they had discovered 16 ground bombs and three earthenware bottles at this site. And they'd been buried at the end of the Second World War, just because that was considered to be an appropriate disposal method at the time. And the defendants then decided, well, what should they do with them? And so they took all of these ground bombs and jars and they took them back to one of their houses. 
and they looked up on Google what they might be and they talked to one of their colleagues who was an ex-armourer in the army. And he noticed there was a red band on these canisters that had been dug up. And he said, this is serious business. These are highly explosive materials and you should tell the bomb squad. So, of course, the individuals concerned did exactly the opposite. They turfed out the contents of the pottery jars and they decided that they would get rid of these canisters, these ground bombs. And these are effectively canisters that you would put on the ground, you would twist, you'd walk away from, perhaps run away from, and then a few minutes later it would explode and it would disperse mustard gas. So instead of doing the right thing and calling the bomb squad, they put the canisters back into the Jeep and they drove through the dead of night out to a secluded area. And there was an old country house here where one of them had been employed as a gardener. And so they took the small rowboat that there was on the lake next to the country house and they rowed across the lake and they dropped the bombs into the lake one by one and then they drove themselves home. Well, you would hardly have thought that would immediately come to light. But because they had turned out the pottery bottles, one of them had to go to hospital the following day with chemical burns on their hands and arms. And another one of them went to their GP surgery feeling unwell and they just immediately collapsed in this venue. So they were asked, could they have been exposed to anything unusual? They had to come clean because they were so concerned for their own health that they might have been exposed to mustard gas. That is a reportable matter. And so the police were involved. They were arrested and their home addresses were searched. The site where the bombs had been discarded was blocked off and it had to be guarded 24 hours a day for about 11 or 12 days until the materials could be recovered. And so we had to get a team of specialist Navy divers in using sonar equipment to help recover all 16 ground bombs. Thankfully, all of them were recovered intact cost of the operation, as you can imagine, was massive. We brought a prosecution where we charged each of the three defendants with discharging poisonous, noxious and polluting material to control waters. And we worked together with the CPS who charged them with the firearms offences. We charged for pretty much one of the very first times in the UK a Chemical Weapons Act charge because these were viable chemical weapons and access to such substances very tightly controlled under the Chemical Weapons Convention and in domestic legislation across Europe. We had to get consent from our Attorney General to prosecute that charge. There are some photographs, they're amazing photographs of the state of the canisters when they were removed, the exercise that the authorities had to go through and the decontamination process. So just to complete the story, the case was dealt with in June 2020 before a High Court judge in Nottingham Crown Court. These three defendants received over 11 years custodial sentences between them for firearms, for chemical weapons and for environmental offences. Some of those sentences were suspended for one of the lesser players, but the main protagonist there went to prison for five years. And you can understand why with these sorts of materials around in the wider world. But I think the lesson there is the officers who went to work on that day and found that they were contacted by the police and had to help remove these materials from the wider environment. We needed to work really very well with all the other organisations that were involved, the Army, the Navy, Porton Down Research Centre. And it's not what you expect as part of your day-to-day -day job, but it is an interesting job. And I think Joe will confirm we do come across all sorts of cases.
I've just add on, Dan, I never get tired of hearing that story. It's a great story and great work. And if I could just add on to that, Justin, a little bit, not the specific case study, but just to give you another success story. I think I mentioned our 30 days of action that we did in 2017. The following year, we decided to set up another operation focused purely on marine pollution. It hadn't really been done before. And again, we weren't sure really who would show up. And so we came up with Operation 30 Days at Sea. One area we perhaps fall short on with the Pollution Crime Working Group was we're not very creative with our names. And so we went from 30 days of action to 30 days at sea. We have 58 countries participate in that operation. What the particular success that I thought we had here was one of our colleagues, Grant Walters from South Africa, said, look, this is an area we have not focused on much in the past. And we'd like the working group to provide some assistance in getting our folks up to speed because we're very interested. So they held a conference at their own expense in Johannesburg, which the number of people that showed up, they came from multiple agencies, do a week-long training in Johannesburg. Many of these folks had never been on a boat before, but they were going to be going out and doing inspections. Our colleagues from the U.S. Coast Guard, Jeff Ray, who's on our board, was able to set up for Coast Guard inspectors to travel over at Coast Guard's expense to do training in this area. As a result of this, directly coming out of this training and this operation, South Africa got their first conviction ever for maritime pollution. And so getting back to not just being a talking shop, we like to make sure that we translate our training and everything else into actual results on the ground. And then the next year we did Operation 30 Days at Sea 2.0. What we were concerned about in that area is the first year with just 30 days of action, we had more typical national EPAs involved. 30 days at sea involved more coastal authorities, and we didn't want to lose the folks we had in the first operation. So as part of this 30 days at sea 2.0, we included waste trafficking through ports. So we considered that marine pollution related. And so we were able to bring back a lot of the environmental agencies that we had in the first operation. We had 63 countries participate. And then the next operation, 30 Days at Sea 3.0, that was conducted during the pandemic. And so there's no in-person meetings. We had to do trainings virtually, which in some ways we learned could be a plus because we were able to get more people involved. But during the pandemic, the largest global law enforcement operation ever focusing on marine pollution, we had 67 countries participate. When we first started, as I said, there hadn't been an operation conducted by the group in eight years. And the prior record for the number of countries participating had been 14. So in just five years, we were able to go from zero to 67 countries. That I would consider a great success story as well. Joanne, thanks so much for sharing these stories and just learning a bit about your storied careers. It's been a great experience today. We wanted to ask one last question before we leave. What advice do you have for young attorneys who want to join the public service? And go first. It's very easy here to join our Crown Prosecution Service. It's very easy to join a firm doing defence work. To find your way into environmental work is perhaps a step further. You need to have perhaps some grounding elsewhere before you get into the environmental sphere. We've taken the view that we can teach people environmental law, but we can't always teach them all the aspects of criminal law, that you need to have some basic grounding in that before you can really take on environmental prosecution. But more and more people become specialists, and there are firms that are specialists and can help develop and bring on young advocates who are interested. And I think that's the fundamental bottom line, that if people are interested, they'll find a way and find a place to get themselves involved. Joe. 
I would agree, though. It's been many years since I've been a young attorney going into public service, but I would advise people of any age to get into it. I think Anne hit most of the high points, I will say, particularly when it comes to the government government work, which sometimes gets viewed sort of negatively or is at least portrayed negatively. Since that's been my whole career, I've found the opportunities to do things that are interesting and significant are there. The amount of responsibility you get early on, it's sometimes daunting, but very significant and much ahead, I think, of many of our colleagues that do not go into public service. And I think at the end of the day, you could feel really good about what you've done because you can actually see how you've made a difference. So again, I don't consider it a job at the moment. I get to do great things with great people. So I feel fortunate that I'm able to do that. So I'd say do it 100%. Thanks so much, Joe and Anne. Yeah, thank you. And thank you both for joining us today on the Enforcement Angle. We appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet Pod, brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.